The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To worship our God by hearing from His Word. Our passage today is Leviticus 4 through 6, 7, chapter 6 through 7. So I'm going to pick up and read beginning in chapter 5. So Leviticus chapter 5, reading through chapter 6, verse 7. Let's give our attention now as God continues to speak to us through His holy and inspired Word. If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Or if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass or an unclean wild animal, or a carcass of unclean livestock, or a carcass of unclean swarming things, and it is hidden from him, and he has become unclean, and he realizes his guilt, or if he touches human uncleanness, or whatever sort the uncleanness may be with which one becomes unclean, and it is hidden from him when he comes to know it and realizes his guilt, or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him, when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or goat, for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. But if he cannot afford a lamb... When he shall bring to the Lord, then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin he has committed, two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. He shall bring them to the priest who shall offer first the one for the sin offering. He shall wring its head from its neck, but shall not sever it completely. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar, while the rest of the blood he shall, shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. Then he shall offer the second for a burnt offering according to the rule, and the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. But if he cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, then he shall bring as his offering for the sin that he has committed a tenth of an ephah, a fine flour for a sin offering. He shall put no oil on it and shall put no frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. And he shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take a handful of it as its memorial portion and burn this on the altar on the Lord's food offerings. It is a sin offering. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he as committed in any one of these things, and he shall be forgiven, and the remainder shall be for the priest, as in the grain offering. And now we move to this other offering, which is uh, called the reparation offering, or guilt offering, according to the ESV. Verse 14, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, 
he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy things and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering and he shall be forgiven. If anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he had not, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned, and has realized his guilt, and will restore what he took by robbery, or what he got by oppression, or the deposit that he that was committed to him, or the lost thing that he found, or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full, and shall add a fifth to it, and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish, out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven of any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. Well, this concludes the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May God now, by the power of his spirit, bless it to us. So what do you do as a believer when you when you have fallen into sin. Now, we may say, I do not need to atone for this sin. I do not need to make up for it. I do not need to work my way back. But what we do and how we respond tells us what we really believe and really the weakness of our faith when it comes to this. We can carry our shame ourselves And the only way we relieve ourselves of that shame is by our own obedience. Once I have enough obedience, once I've kept myself away from this sin long enough, once I deem it sufficient enough, then I can be absolved of my guilt and relieved of my shame. We can beat ourselves up, afflict ourselves, withhold comforts from ourselves, until we believe we deserve those comforts again by our own better obedience. We can respond to our sin by reading our Bibles more, spending longer times in our devotions, doing good Christian works in light of the sin that we have committed. This will last, though, until we don't feel so bad about our sin anymore. Some of us can respond by hardening our conscience, downplaying 
our sin, making excuses for it. Anyone comes and tries to condemn us or address us in our sin, it's like we're the best lawyer on planet Earth, giving the most masterful de- defense of why we are righteous. We can believe that others have the law in their eye that we can pick apart in detail and focus in on, while we merely just have a speck in our own eye. Jesus got it backwards, we can functionally say. But how should we respond to our sin as a believer? And we see how we should in our passage today. We have in our passage from Leviticus the answer to what can wash away our sins even after falling into sin as a believer. And that is the sacrifice offered for our sin. And that's the only thing given to take care of our sin. And that sacrifice for sin, of course, ultimately points to the once and for all sacrifice that is perfected for all time those who have believed in Christ by His single offering. His sacrifice is what all these sacrifices pointed to and pictured. And so when we fall into sin, we must depend upon that sacrifice and that sacrifice alone that can wash away the guilt of our sin, leading to then walking in true holiness. So we're going to look at today three truths we learn about the sacrifice for sin. The first is this, that it covers all sin. Now, as Tim pointed out in the Scripture reading, that we saw the first three offerings in chapters 1 through 3. In chapter 1, we saw the whole burnt offering, which was required to make atonement. Uh, that is to make up for our sins so that we may be at one with God. That we may be at peace with God, specifically for the purpose of being able to now approach God in worship. That was that first offering in chapter 1. In chapter 2, we saw the grain offering. This is us offering up the the fruit of our labor, the work of our hands, as a proper and reasonable response to our God who has saved us, comes after the whole burnt offering. And then in chapter 3, we saw that third offering, which is the fellowship or communion offering. And it's a picture of the communion and fellowship we have with God because of the peace of the, that the sacrifice brings. Now, today we see two additional offerings. The first is in chapter 4 through 5.13. And this is referred to as the purification offering because it brings purification in light of our ongoing sin. And then the next sacrifice is in 5.14 through 6.7. It's called the guilt offering in the ESV, but it's better translated as reparation offering. It's it's making reparation that's caused by our sin. And really what this is showing us is how the sacrifice of Christ deals with all these different aspects of our sin. And so we begin with the sinner purification offering in chapter 4 under the heading of how it deals with all our sin. And we see the occasion for this in verses 1 through 2, which says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally 
in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done and does any one of them. So a worshiper, as he is living life, either sins or realizes his sin. And the type of sin this is called here is unintentional sin or inadvertent sin. And what this is referring to is somebody, when they sin, didn't realize they were sinning, didn't mean to sin, realizes afterwards that they had sinned, was not cognitive of it. Its contrast in Numbers 15 is a high-handed sin. So a high-handed sin is contrasted to an unintentional sin. And a high-handed sin is one stemming from God's hatred from God's Word. This is where a person knows what they should do and yet doesn't do it or knows what they should not do and do it anyway. But an unintentional sin is one where somebody did not cognitively realize at the time that they were sinning. And we read of several unintentional sins in chapter 5. So jumping ahead to chapter 5, we'll be kind of jumping around here uh, through this passage. So verse 1 mentions a failure to testify in court. So you're a witness, and there's a call for witnesses to come before the elders in, in this of the gate, or in to use our vernacular, courtroom, to testify. You know something that is important in the matter to either condemn the wicked or justify the righteous, but you fail to show up for whatever reason. Maybe you uh, were afraid to testify. I didn't think that your testimony would be important enough. Maybe you just forgot. You were busy that day, and by the end of the day you realize, oh, that, that testimony was today. I forgot all about it. I still remember a friend of mine who as like the cleanest record on the world, served in the military. He was a roommate of mine at the time, and he got a speeding ticket. And he went to court, and he asked the judge for um, traffic school, so to, to go through it, and then that gets expunged off his record. Well, the day of the traffic school came and went, and the next day I asked him, hey, how was traffic school? And he goes, oh, I forgot all about it, and he had a warrant out for his arrest which is quite funny, but he, he got it resolved. The police didn't come take him away, anything like that. But that would be an example of an unintentional sin. Oh, I forgot all about that. But in any case, God says that he shall bear his iniquity, that his sin is still laid on him until it is relieved by the sacrifice that God has him offer. Then there's touching an unclean thing in verses 2 through 3. Could be a dead animal, or even an unclean, creeping thing, a bug, or it could be coming in contact with an unclean person, and then later on you realize, oh, I didn't realize that person was unclean. I didn't realize I stepped on that bug. And so, what are you to do? Well, you are to offer up a sacrifice. Something is to die in your behalf, even for that. Then in verse four, rash oaths are mentioned. This is someone who says. Without thinking first, I swear I will do this. And then later realizes that actually wasn't a good idea. Or the person intended to do it. And realizes that he overcommitted and can't do it. Even overcommitment requires a sacrifice for sin. And then we move on to unintentional sins that require the second offering that we're looking at today, which is the reparation offering. Or as the ESV puts it, the guilt offering. This is specifically focusing 
on making up for a loss caused by your sin. Your sin costs somebody some, something. In verses 5, 14 through 19, in chapter 5, verses 14 through 19, the focus is on robbing God. And then in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, the focus is on robbing men. In both cases, a reparation offering is specifically what is needed. So in verses 14 through 19 of chapter 5, we read of this robbing God. Verses 14 through 16, we have what's called a breach of faith. And this is more accurately translated a sacrilege. Uh, that is to regard something that is holy as unholy or treated irreverently. It's when they devoted something to the Lord, such as they wanted to devote grain to the Lord for the grain offering, or they wanted to devote an animal to the Lord for their sacrificial offering. And they set that aside and say, I am going to use this specifically for the Lord. And then he has a senior moment and he accidentally uses that grain to bake something and eats it. And then realizes, oh, that was the grain I set aside to the Lord. That's a sacrilege. Or an ox was meant to be devoted to the Lord as a sacrifice. And the man tells his son, hey, go get the other ox that we didn't devote to the Lord. And the son makes a mistake and breaks the ox devoted to the Lord. And the man uses that ox, which he's not supposed to do if he's devoted it to the Lord. And guess what? He realizes afterwards, oh, wait a minute. This was the ox that I devoted to the Lord. It's a mistake. But the Lord says you still need to offer up a sacrifice for sin. Something still needs to die. And then in verses 17 through 19, we read of someone simply feeling guilty. The sin is not listed here. It just says if he has broken any of the commandments, it ought not to be done. And then realizes, wait a minute, I have some guilt here. But I don't know exactly what it is. And his conscience is afflicting him. We've all been through that. It's like I have this sense of guilt. And the world will tell you, no, don't be so hard on yourself. You're, you're, you're perfect the way you are. You are so worth it. You are so righteous. You are so great. Pat yourself on the back a little bit more. Don't be so hard on yourself. Well, verse 19 doesn't say, don't worry about it. You're innocent. You're so wonderful. Just tell yourself how wonderful you are. Verse 19 says, if you feel guilty, he has indeed incurred guilt. We are more deeply flawed than we realize. So much so that we are blind to much of our sin to the point that we can't always trace the guilt of our conscience to what particular sin is making us feel guilty. But rather than first trying to identify it and name it specifically and trying to make up for it by my own righteousness, by replacing that sin with better obedience in light of it, God says, offer a sacrifice and you will be forgiven. But all these unintentional sins show the perfection that God requires in our inability to attain it, which is what Pastor Tim was uh, bringing up during the Scripture reading. We must be so meticulous, so careful, for we to serve death. God does not accept us on the basis of our sincerity. Well, I, I honestly didn't mean to. I, I sincerely wanted to do what is right. I just made a mistake. It was not intentional. I didn't intend to sin. It was unintentional. 
Well, God doesn't say, that's okay. That doesn't matter. No, God says, even for that, something needs to die. And this is one of the lessons that the legalists in all of us needs to learn. Some legalists are perfectionists, which is not merely a personality trait that the secular psychologist would have us believe. Rather, we need to ask the question, why is it so important for me to be a perfectionist? Why must I get everything right? Why must I be perfect? Why am I very bothered if I find out I made a mistake or my performance is lacking, my righteousness isn't perfect? Why does that bother me? Well, it's a false belief that we can attain perfection. And oftentimes this, this gets imposed on others. We get bothered by others' violation of breaking the rules. How can you not be perfect like me? Why don't you just get it together? Why don't you flip a switch? I, got, I did it. Why can't you? But we need to realize just how far short we each have fallen. That even a mistake, an unintentional sin, deserves death. And we must therefore rely on Christ's meticulous law-keeping and sacrificial death in our place as our righteousness before Him and not our meticulous rule-keeping or any sort of perfection because we can never attain to it as sinners. But then we see actual serious sins in chapter 6, verses 1-7, through seven, as we now move on to sin causing man to suffer loss. But the sin focused on here is not specifically stealing from one's neighbor, but rather lying about it, swearing falsely to it. This is why verse 2 of chapter 6 says that he commits a breach of faith. That is a sacrilege. Because the, the violation here is on swearing falsely, taking God's name in vain, rather than just merely taking someone's property. Someone's property is not inherently sacred. Uh, something that's sacred is something particularly devoted as holy to the Lord. And so this person swears falsely. And back then, what would happen is, if it was suspected that this person took something, but there's no hard and fast evidence for it, then what he would do is he would go before the elders to the gate, and he would swear before God that he did not take it. So if he suspected he, he has stolen from the neighbor, whether it's a matter of deposit or security, like, like a person's cloak. So the person would give his cloak as a security deposit, basically, for a loan or something he borrowed from his neighbor. And he realizes, well, I don't have it. And the neighbor said, no, I it back to you. You just forgot that I gave it back to you. Or somebody broke into my house and took it. And in reality, he has it. Or uh, he found something that belonged to him. Just this morning, Stephen, I left my wallet in his car. And I didn't even realize it. He texted me, hey, I have your wallet. <laughs> I'm thankful for that. But if it was, hey, what, what did I do with my wallet? And I realized, wait a minute, I thought I left it in Stephen's car. And I call Stephen, hey, um, 
you have my wallet? And he goes, no, 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 I, no, no, you, know, you just lost it when he actually has it, which he wouldn't do. That's why he's the one that says, hey, I have your wallet before I even realized that I had lost my wallet. Uh, if it was a matter in, in the time of Israel, we would go before the elders and he would swear, I did not take your wallet. But in the case where the person actually did and swore falsely, and it says he comes, realizes his guilt, that is, he's convicted of his sin. It becomes convicted, I have sinned. Then God says he is to bring a sacrifice of a ram before the Lord. And the priest shall present it to the Lord on his behalf. And look at the result in verse 7. It says, And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. What a glorious thing this is, because this shows a sacrifice not just for unintentional sin, but even something as intentional as breaking the third commandment and taking the Lord's name in vain. And also, what a glorious thing this is that God gives assurance that even this egregious and intentional sin is forgiven by the Lord through this sacrifice. What sweet words for a guilty sinner to hear. And we've all been there. We have broken God's law. We have violated His standard. We have done so intentionally. And yet, what God tells us is through the sacrifice, you have been forgiven. And that comes up again and again in our lengthy passage. This assurance of pardon from the sacrifice. And as part of a genuine and true repentance, uh, this one repays the one from whom he stole and then adds a fifth to it because it cost the person to be without the thing for a time. It's like Zacchaeus when he received salvation from the Lord. He responded in genuine repentance by paying back those whom he had defrauded and even more so. So not only intentional sins, but also not only unintentional sins, but also intentional sins recovered by the sacrifice. Well, what about the sins that require the death penalty? Those who committed murder could not offer up a sacrifice but had to die. Those who committed adultery likewise could not offer up a sacrifice but had to die. Those who broke the fifth commandment by cursing their parents could not offer up a sacrifice, but had to die. Those who broke the Sabbath by gathering wood could not offer up a sacrifice, but had to die, as we see in Numbers. What about these egregious sins? Does this mean there's no sacrifice for these sins? Does this mean that if we've committed these sins, that Jesus' blood and sacrifice does not cover those sins? Some have concluded that. But we have to keep two things in mind. First, Israel was a theocracy. That means the civil government and the religious sphere were together under one nation. The, the church and state, to use our vernacular, were, were not separate. They were together. So Israel was to execute capital punishment on those sins that deserved it. It's similar today. Uh, you may violate the laws of the land, and God 
forgives you of that, but you still need to pay a civil penalty. You can't go before the judge when you get a traffic ticket and say, well, God's forgiven me. No, you still pay the fine. Uh, you still uh, need to go through the, the civil authorities, and that can even be the case, God forbid, that a Christian would murder someone. Well, God will forgive you, but you still face the death penalty by the civil authorities. But back then, these two were together, so Israel would execute the civil penalties. But, but second, the animal sacrifices ultimately can never take away sins. Now, even though our passage says, by offering up these animal sacrifices, by shedding the blood of animals, you shall be forgiven. We read later on in the Bible in Hebrews, it is impossible for the blood of animals to take away sins. So why does our passage say then, he shall be forgiven, when later on in the Bible it says, it can't take away sins? Well, that's because these sacrifices were types and shadows. They were offering up typological sins, if you will. That is, this person would not be thrust out of the land, and this person could still approach God as he represented himself in the tabernacle. It was in relation to this types and shadows in the tabernacle. But this pointed to greater sacrifices. A greater sacrifice. This pointed to the sacrifice of Christ whose blood does bring forgiveness. Christ did not offer up animal blood, but His very own blood. And this is why we see God forgive egregious sins, such as David, who committed adultery, who committed murder, and God declared to him through the prophet Nathan, you shall not die for your sins. God has forgiven them. And this is why the Apostle Paul could say to adulterers in 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you, but you were justified. That is forgiven in the name of the Lord. And this is why the Apostle Paul himself, who was a violent aggressor, who didn't just commit the first martyrdom, but actually oversaw it, gave the approval over it, gave the okay for it. This is why he could say, I'm the chief of sinners, and I receive mercy so that it would be shown that all who desire forgiveness in Christ would be forgiven. If I could be forgiven, so can anybody. The sacrifice of Christ truly does cover all sin. And the point of offering a sacrifice for unintentional sins, as Pastor Tim brought up during the Scripture reading, is that even those sins need to be forgiven. Even a mistake needs to be forgiven. Whether small or great, this is true of all sin. As chapter 15, paragraph 5 of our Confession of Faith says, There is no sin so small that it deserves damnation. Yet there is no sin so great that it shall bring damnation on them that repent. And this brings us to the second truth we learn about the sacrifice, and that it deals with all the effects of sin. And we see this in that different sacrifices are offered based on the person who sinned. And then Pastor Tim went through this during the scripture reading, uh, these different uh, people and the effects that they can bring. And we start in chapter 4, verse 3, with the high priest. 
where it says, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. So that this is the anointed priest and that it's singular likely refers to the high priest. And notice what it says about his sin. His sin brings guilt on the people. His actions make all the people guilty. This is said of no one else. This means that the high priest represented the people before God. This is part of his office. If he sinned, the people were guilty. His sin was imputed to them. And this is something we need to keep in mind, especially in our American individualism. It's not merely a matter of whether or not you sin or do good. Your status before God depends on your representative. And that representative is our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the great high priest. Whether or not you stand before God righteous is based upon Christ's righteousness. Just as the high priest could bring sin in all the people, so Christ, our great high priest, can bring righteousness upon us, His people. And this He has done by His perfect obedience to the law in our place and suffering its curse, being for all our sins, so that we stand before God righteous. He is our representative. But when it came to the, to the Levitical high priest, unlike Jesus, he was a sinner. And so he could sin and needed to offer a sacrifice for sin. And so verse 4 says that he was to take a bull, the most costly of the sacrifices, among what was killed and offered as a sacrifice. He was to take it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, meaning that he was to take it before the presence of God. And this is the same for each person. And verse 4 also says that he shall lay his hand on the head of the bull. As we saw last time, this is a word that means to lean upon, to, to place one's whole weight on. This is the same act for the subsequent sacrifices, except for the last two. And that he transferred all his weight, as it were, upon the sacrifice, indicated that he was relying, he was leaning on this sacrifice to take care of his sins, to atone for his sins. And this means that the only thing that can wash away his sins was the blood, shed blood of the sacrifice. And this, beloved, shows us what we are to trust in when we sin against God, even as believers. We are to fully lean on the sacrifice offered up on our behalf, that once and for all sacrifice of Jesus to remove all our guilt and nothing that we do. What do we tend to do when we sin? I need to make up for this by my, by my own better obedience. And yes, we are to grow in our obedience, but that does not pay for our sin. What pays for our sin, what removes the guilt of the sin, is the sacrifice and the sacrifice alone. And so when we sin, we don't do anything in order to make up for our sin, to deal with the guilt and shame, but simply confess it before the Lord, trusting in the sufficiency of that sacrifice to cover our sin. 
trusting alone in that blood that washes away our sin. We also trust Him to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As First John says, when we confess our sins, we not only does He forgive us, but He also is the one who cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And this is represented by the sprinkling and pouring out of the blood. Verse 6 says He is to sprinkle the blood seven times, the number of perfection, indicating perfect cleansing and purification, in front of the veil that covers the most holy place. And this signifies that the place from sin, the, the place in front of God, the presence of God, has been purified from our sin so that God may continue to dwell in the presence of the sinner. And verse 7 says that he's to put some of the blood on the altar and pour out the blood at the base of the altar. This purifies the altar on which the sacrifice was offered. And the pouring on the ground seems to be a reconsecration of the altar that has been desecrated by sin that shares the same ground as the sinner. And verses 8-12 through 12 show that the best of the bulls to be offered to the Lord while it remains, that is the things that get discarded like the dung, is to be disposed of outside the camp. Outside the camp there is an ash heap that continuously burns. And this symbolizes how our sin is removed and cast out of the presence of God. Hebrews 13 brings this very thing up and says that is why Jesus was crucified outside the camp. That He was treated as a defiled thing, bearing our sin, being brought outside the camp and removing our sin. And this also seems to symbolize hell. For Revelation 14 says that sinners will go up and smoke forever and ever after they have been cast out of the presence of God. And this ash sheep continuously burned outside the camp, showing what happens to our sin. And we see the same process in verses 13 through 21 when the whole congregation sins. This reveals that a whole body can sin together. And this is why Christ confronts whole churches in Revelation. But the sacrifice and essential procedure was the same. And in only these two cases, the high priest and the congregation was the blood sprinkled in front of the veil. The other sacrifices, the blood was not sprinkled in front of the veil. The veil represented God's presence. And obviously the high priest, he actually entered into God's presence, and that's why the blood was sprinkled on the veil. But what about the congregation? They were not allowed to just come in to the veil. Well, what this reveals is that the congregation, which refers to the assembly of God's people, gathered for worship, that their worship comes before God into His presence through the high priest. And that's what happens when we gather for worship. Our worship right now is in the presence of God that comes to God through our high priest. And in verses 22-26, through 26, a leader's sin is addressed. And then in verses 27 and following, a common person's sin is addressed. A leader, a tribal leader, or elder of the people, his sin would have greater effects. And so he was to bring a male goat, not as costly as the bull, but yet more costly than the subsequent sacrifices. And then we see that for the common person, he is to bring 
a lamb or a lesser sacrifice. What we are seeing here is that sin has different effects. The sacrifice God requires deals with all the effects of our sin. And we see that the sacrifice does indeed sufficiently address sin because we see the same statement in verses 26, 31, and 35. The priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. God gives an assurance of pardon to his people. And what blessed assurance is this? A worshiper has sinned and their conscience is afflicted. And God does not say, wait until you are more righteous in this area. Wait until a period of having not committed this sin before you can be assured of forgiveness. Rather, He gives assurance to the worshiper upon the sacrifice being offered on His behalf. Atonement has been made for you and you are forgiven. And brothers and sisters, how much more is this true for us in the New Testament, in the New Covenant with Jesus' blood being offered on our behalf? Do we not hear, as we should hear every Lord's Day, the sacrifice has been offered once and all for you, and God declares to you, people of God, your sins are Forgiven. What glorious truth this is. But you may have noticed an offering that is different from the rest of them. And this brings us to the third truth we learn about the sacrifice. Really a truth we learn about the one who forgives sin. And this will be much briefer. All provision. That is, all provision is made for any sinner to come. We saw something of this last Lord's Day. In verses 7-10 through 10 of chapter 5, if the sinner cannot afford a lamb, then he is to offer up two turtle doves or pigeons. And if, if he is still too poor as to not be able to afford that, then verses 11 through 13 says he shall offer up fine flour. But in both cases, assurance of pardon is given. Verse 10 and verse 13, atonement has been made and he shall be forgiven. Now, birds are certainly much lesser of a sacrifice than a lamb or a goat or a bull, but it's still shedding of blood. And Hebrews 9.22 reminds us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But with the flower offering, there is no shedding of blood. And yet God still says, He shall be forgiven. How can God say that? when there's not shedding of blood. Well, this is meant to stand out to us in order to show us the great mercy and compassion of our God. He puts no hindrance in the way of sinners, but makes every provision for them to come because He delights to show mercy. He waits on high to have compassion on rich sinners. Therefore, He puts no obstacle in the way of the sinner whatsoever to come to Him. He welcomes and even pleads for sinners to come and be reconciled to Him. And we hear this in Isaiah 55 where God declares to the prophet Isaiah, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. 
all may come to Him. The call is to all, whether rich or poor, a social outcast or noble, a drunk pagan or a religious legalistic hypocrite, a dear child who has fallen into sin. All may surely come to Him, no matter what your sin, no matter how badly you have fallen into sin. God is a God of mercy and compassion, and He will forgive your sin. This is a picture presented in the flower offering of the free offer of the Gospel, rather than going into debt to buy a sacrifice for sins. As if you had to go into debt to pay off a debt before God. Or working your way to pay for a sacrifice to bring to God. God would have you come freely and He would have you come now without delay. He is eager to forgive. He is ready to forgive. He is a God full of mercy and compassion. What a merciful God we have. That not only does He provide a sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins, but He makes all provision for any sinner to come to Him to find rest for their weary souls because He is a God who pities sinners. He is a God who loves sinners and He desires that they come and receive the full forgiveness provided in that sacrifice that He has offered in His Son without money, and without price. May God draw us to Himself to always rely on that sacrifice. And may we never, ever offer up any of our works in place of that sufficient sacrifice of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that You would help us to rely on Christ. and We know this in our head, but we need to know this in our heart so that we continuously rely on You leading us to loving You and serving You when we consider the wonder that You have forgiven us, that You have offered up Your Son, and that You have loved us with an eternal love. May we believe this. May we see it with the eyes of faith leading us to live for You sacrificially. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.